So brothers and sisters, Psalm 23 says that surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. We sang these words earlier in this service. But what is the significance of that confession of faith? There there is a sense in which these words of faith and comfort only have meaning as they follow the previous reference to the valley of the shadow of death. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And so it's the, it's the juxtaposition of death with God's goodness and mercy that makes God's goodness and mercy so meaningful, so comforting. And notice that it doesn't say, even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. In other words, there really is no question to live this life, to walk through this world, is to walk through a dark valley, even the valley of the constant shadow of death. And so could we not say not only that God's goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, but that death shall follow me all the days of my life. This is our reality. Walking through this life is to be followed by death in a sense. And we begin this way because the the closing passage of Genesis 35 is a passage about death. And it's a message that uh, began last time, even if you recall, as we heard that Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died at Bethel. It seems likely, or it seems uh, rather like a, a passing reference, uh, because uh, that's all it says, uh, that this woman died and was buried at Bethel. Uh, even more, there is only one other reference to this woman prior to this story. And this is even the first time uh, her name is even mentioned in the report of her death. But more than a passing reference, the detail brings death to Bethel, even as God's covenant for life is renewed once again on the same occasion. So the effect of the reference uh, is, is to remind us that God had not promised that life would be free of death. It was true for Abraham, for Isaac, and now for Jacob, and it's also true for us. We even have the fulfillment of Christ, uh, or the fulfillment in Christ, of God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and ja Jacob, and yet for us too, we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Even on a daily basis, death always following, each day catching up with us a little bit more until the hour will come when death will overtake us. So we are called upon by God's word to consider death once again in this next passage. Three of four points, you see from the outline, make, um, uh, make use of the word death, but amid the point, uh, but, but amid the others is the point um, that here is as well the story of life, uh, uh, the birth of a child. Granted, it's a, a birth that causes death, but a son is born and his name will point us to Christ. His name will remind us that it's true. God's goodness and mercy have always will always follow God's people throughout their lives. 
So the first point is the death of Rachel. Verse 16 records that then they journeyed from Bethel when they were still some distance from Ephrath. Rachel went into labor and she had hard labor. Verse 19 tells us, so Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Once again, more death or at least another death. And I wonder if Rachel's death shed some light on why we are told of Deborah's death, because uh, first it's the death of a nurse, a, a servant charged with caring for children. And now here's a mother dying, even as she gives birth to a child. We have any number of ways to describe the succession of such things, things going from bad to worse. Uh, when it rains, it pours. Uh, don't worry, things can only get worse from here. So if Deborah's death introduces the theme of death, Rachel's death would seem to accentuate the theme. By the time the passage closes, we will hear also of Isaac's death. But there are a few other details to note before we get to the, the child born to Rachel, even upon the day of her death. I, I think we are not meant to miss the significance of the location of her death even as they were approaching Bethlehem, the city of the birth of our Lord Jesus. And does it not even point us to Christ? Because Rachel didn't quite make it to Bethlehem. She was even buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Her child would not be the one to be born in Bethlehem. And so another detail to see is a certain emphasis on the journey. It's the second time in the story that we hear of the journey that Jacob and his household were on. And remember what led up to this journey. First, Jacob had returned to the promised land and had settled. Next, Dinah was defiled, followed by the massacre of the city of Shechem, leading then to God's instruction, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. So that verse 5 records, as they journeyed. The significance is that Jacob and his entire household had, had been uprooted from the land. They had become wanderers in the land, even as Abraham and Isaac had been. And now the second reference to the journey. Verse 16 again says, then they journeyed from Bethel. We take the word journey for granted, I think. For, for us, travel is actually quite easy compared to what it was for Jacob and his household. Uh, we travel great distances uh, in relative comfort. Oh, we complained about not enough leg room, but uh, it's nothing compared uh, to what the journey was for Jacob and his household. We travel without great expense, at least compared to Jacob's experience. But imagine a, a journey that was far more than popping in the car or hopping aboard an airplane. Imagine walking the journey and imagine taking all your possessions with you. It was a difficult thing to do and it was expensive, surely, by way of the loss of livestock along the way. It was also dangerous to pass through the land of, of other people. So again, we're reminded by the text that 
throughout the Old Testament, there is always a, a journey being traveled. Sometimes it's a literal journey, like the journey of Abraham's servant to go and find a wife for Isaac. Then there is the journey of Jacob also to Paddan Aram, uh, that he too might take a wife from the family of his grandfather, Abraham. But overall, the journey is symbolic. It, it shows us that while there is always a, a forward movement, yet things are always unsettled. And even as the journey approaches Bethlehem, we see that they were not yet ready to arrive there. The promised one had not yet come. The journey continued. And with the journey comes death. So the second, uh, uh, the second point brings hope, hope even in the experience of death, the, the birth of another son, even the birth of Benjamin. Verse 17 reads, and when his labor was at its heart, when her labor was at its hardest, uh, the midwife said to her, do not fear, for you have another son. Once again, we have the birth of a son under the promise of God upon his people. You remember how it, how it all started in the Garden of, of, uh, of Eden uh, when, we, uh, when we heard the, the promise of God that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And there is good reason to understand, as we've pointed out before, that upon the birth uh, of even this, her first son, Eve was hopeful that the Savior had come because she said something that was actually quite unexpected. She didn't say, I've had a baby or I've been given a son. She said, I have acquired a man. It seems that she was already thinking of this child, this male child, already hoping that he would be the one whose heel would be bitten, but whose heel would also crush the head of the evil one. Then do you remember the story of Noah's birth and the meaning of Noah's name? In Genesis 5, we are given the, the genealogy between uh, Adam and Noah, and the chapter ends with the story of Noah's birth when we hear uh, that his father named his son Noah, saying, out of the ground that God has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. The name Noah means rest. Here again, the reference is, is back to the curse. Uh, the punishment of God at the fall of man, the servant is, the serpent is cursed uh, by the promise that the seed of Eve would crush his head. Eve is cursed with pain and childbearing. Adam is cursed as he is banished from the garden and made to toil and sweat uh, to survive upon the earth that Satan now ruled. And so Noah's father said out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Well, Noah was a righteous man, that means he was a man of faith. And uh, while God gave us that great picture of salvation through the flood, yet neither was Noah the one to come. Again and again, there is, there is the expectation that, well, perhaps this one will be the one. 
with the birth of Isaac, with the birth of Esau and, and Jacob, which is perhaps why Isaac favored his son Esau. After all, which of his two sons would, would more likely be the one? Surely Esau, with all of his strength and skill in hunting. But otherwise, here in large part is why the, the birth of a son was considered better than, than the birth of a daughter. It hardly seems fair to the, to the daughters. But the promise in the garden was that he shall crush the head of the serpents, not she and not they, but he will crush your head, said God to Satan. So a son is born and, and, and his mother, even at her death, sought to name him Ben-Ami, meaning son of my sorrow, or another possible translation would be son of my strength. If we read it as son of my strength, uh, her meaning was likely that here was the child born by the last pouring out of her strength before she died. Either way, whether son of my sorrow or son of my strength, a son was born, another male child was born under the covenant of God and in light of the promise of God for a coming savior. And yet that did not become the name of the child. Again, it hardly seems fair that Rachel was not able to name her last child even as she died. But Jacob had another name in mind. Verse 18 finishes, but his father called him Benjamin, meaning son of the right hand. And what did Jacob mean by this? We can note that throughout scripture, uh, the right hand means favor which accords with grace. It doesn't seem that he was saying son of my right hand, but son of the right hand, even of God's right hand. In other words, the name was the expression of Jacob's hope by faith that here was the son of God's favor towards his people, the son chosen of God to save his people from their sins. And if we understand the name Benjamin in this way, we now can hear in the story another juxtaposition, which we uh, have noted uh, in, in Psalm 23. In fact, all the way through this chapter, there seems to be a kind of back and forth between sin and grace, between death and hope. Now we're back to sin because now we see sin amidst death. We have what seems like another passing reference, verse 22, quite suddenly, it seems, reports, um, while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Here was a a serious and gross sin. And again, why tell us this now? It seems to serve the overall theme of death. With the birth of a son, of one son, comes the great sin of another son. And as the sons of Jacob are listed, then in the next several verses, we are reminded that this son was even Jacob's firstborn son, so even as the last son of Jacob is born, 
his first son proves that he is most certainly not the one. And so to point us to a son yet to be born. Otherwise, it's, it's the juxtaposition and, and, and it's a setting of things side by side uh, that, that we live with every day in our lives. Births and yet the pain of childbearing, weddings to attend and yet fun- funerals too. Life goes on day by day with life and death, profit and loss, success and failure. Spring and summer followed by fall and winter, we live in God's good creation, and yet it's a world filled with death. Mankind made in the image of God, people doing marvelous, wondrous things by way of the, of the bodies and the intelligence that God gave them, and yet man using the gifts of God and the blessings of creation to rebel against God, even to defile himself and others in his rebellion against God. Sometimes it seems to me uh, rather impossible that, that things can be so good in this world, and yet this world can be so filled with sin. We see it in our children. They, they delight us. We enjoy them. We, we enjoy seeing them grow, and, and yet we struggle with them. And, and we can clearly see that they are sinners like us. I think that's what we're seeing in the passage before us this morning. In fact, it's, it's what we see throughout Scripture. Life and death, good and evil, blessing and rebellion, happiness and terrible grief in the experience of death. And are we not? Right back to Psalm 23. Even though, not even if, but even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. So that ultimately this confession of faith comes to our lips. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, finally, then the death of Isaac. Once more, we see death in the story. The closing verses tell of Jacob coming to his father, Isaac, who is now 180 years old. The text says that he was old and full of days. He had lived a good long life, as we say. But like all mankind, death had been following him all the days of his life until the hour came when Isaac breathed his last and he died and was gathered to his people old and full of days. But then here's a last return to to life, grace, and hope under the grace of God. It says that his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Think of the times now, even recently, that we've been told where a person who had died was buried. I think the fact that we aren't told that here with the burial of Isaac, puts a different emphasis on the reference. The emphasis is not so much on the burial of Isaac, but but that the death of Isaac brought a reunion between Esau and Jacob. 
And we can easily remember the, the division between them. Jacob had cheated his brother out of his birthright. Jacob had uh, tricked his father Isaac to get the blessing. Uh, Esau was so angry, he, he was murderous in his anger. And Jacob had fled the land and gone uh, away for, for more than 10 years because he had, remember he had to work seven years for each of his two wives. And then upon his return, he was met by Esau as he came into the land and there was a, a brief reunion there to be sure. But again, Jacob had tricked his brother, telling Esau to go on ahead while he followed, only he didn't follow. And he went and settled apart from his brother. But now they are together again upon the occasion of their father's death. It's so often the same in our day that death and funerals bring families back together. And we are known to say, Oh, why does it have to be death that brings us together? We should have a family reunion next year. But then it too easily doesn't happen until they're together again for another funeral. The same thing is true here. It wasn't the case that Esau and Jacob were close after that day. It was still the matter of covenant separation. The blessing of the covenant would pass through Jacob though he was second born. The promised land would pass to the descendants of Jacob and the family line of the promised one would be traced through, through the generations of Jacob. It was in fact God's separation that would separate them for the rest of their lives. But another significant thing to note, I think, is that Esau is uh, is named first in the report of their coming together to bury their father. It says, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. We tend to speak of, uh, of the two as Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau, we say, because Jacob was the one favored by God. But, but here it's Esau and Jacob. So we are reminded of what we, what we said a number of weeks ago, that uh, that God had blessed Esau as well as Jacob, and and the entire next chapter in Genesis is dedicated. Guess what? To Esau. And so we are also reminded that uh, the day would come in the history of redemption when God's grand plan of salvation, when all the nations of the world would be brought into God's covenant and his gracious promises. On one hand, this simple reference to Esau and Jacob can remind us of God's promise to Abraham that through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That's the part of God's covenant with Abraham that, that most helps us to see that that, that covenant is the very covenant that is fulfilled and expanded in Jesus Christ. And so on the other hand, this simple reference to Esau and Jacob can also point us forward to that, that great day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit would be given, not just to the Jewish people, but to all the nations that were gathered in Jerusalem. On that day.
We'll likely hear more about these things next week as we look into Genesis 36, the Lord willing. But for now, there is much death to deal with for Jacob and his household and for us. We walk each day through the valley of the shadow of death. And yet by the covenant promises of God, because Bethlehem has now been reached, The promised one has now been born. He has come so that by our faith in him, it is so true that surely, surely God's goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our life until we reach our journey's end. Amen. Let us pray. Thank you, O God, that as we read your word, we can always be thinking about the journey that your people were on leading up to Bethlehem, leading up to the coming of Christ and the fulfillment of uh, of your covenant promises in him. And we do pray that uh, as we continue our journey, as we um, pass through the valley of the shadow of death, We will know that by Christ, surely your goodness and mercy shall always follow us throughout our lives. Lord, bless us to see Christ on every page and even more to put our full trust in him. In his name we pray. Amen.